You're listening to Radio 1190, 1190 AM, KVCU, Boulder, Denver, 98.9 FM, Translator K255DA, Boulder. And of course, we're always on Radio1190.org, wherever you are, whether you're in Boulder, whether you're in Denver, whether you are anywhere around the world, honestly, you can find us there. My name's Lucy. You're listening to News Underground. We're starting a little late today, and we're going to end a little early, but... That's what happens when it's midterms, and it's also dreary outside. I don't know if you've been outside in the Boulder Valley yet, but starting to starting to drizzle, starting to rain, do something. Maybe it's going to snow later. Who knows? Who, who really knows? If you don't like the weather in Colorado, wait 10 minutes. You know, that's always how it is. Uh, but I have a somewhat brief but a good show for you today. Very jam-packed slash... Uh, dense show. First, uh, we're going to talk with the journalists who broke the Harvey Weinstein scandal. They were on campus on Monday night, and I got to talk with them just briefly before they did their talk about about breaking the the scandal and the expose and kind of kickstarting the Me Too movement uh, into turbo mode. Uh, and also their new book, She Said, which is out very recently, and they're kind of on a tour right now, and that's why they stopped by Boulder. Uh, and then after that, we're going to hear a bit about the vaping ban that is in effect in the city of Boulder, um, and kind of some of the public health mentality behind that. But first up, uh, I spoke with Jody Cantor and Megan Tui on Monday about their book, She Said, and about the Pulitzer winning prize expose that they published on Harvey Weinstein's sexual assault and sexual harassment of uh, many of his employees and contractors and just women that he had encountered over the decades of his business. And uh, so, yeah, we're going to talk about that. Uh, the, The interview does not get into details of sexual assault, so rest assured... You're not going to hear anything super detailed in that way. Um, But if it's a sensitive topic for you, tune out for about 10 minutes or so. And then when you tune in, uh, we will have some interesting discussion on vaping from one of our news correspondents. So you're listening to News Underground on Radio 1190. Megan Tui, investigative reporter. Jody Cantor, investigative reporter. Megan Tui, investigative reporter. Though the Me Too movement originated with Tarana Burke in 2006, the article that you guys published in 2017 uh, that kind of blew up the Harvey Weinstein scandal was the first one to bring the widespread issue of sexual harassment and assault into the main stage of, uh, of discussion. Did you anticipate that the article would blow up like that? Certainly not. Um... As one of our editors put it many times before publication, Harvey Weinstein wasn't that famous. Um, Our editor wasn't poo-pooing our story. He was actually trying to make it stronger. What What you do is you sit behind the scenes and you say, why might some people not care about this and how can how can we get them to care so part of why we wrote our book is that we're trying to bring people on that entire journey from you know the behind the scenes of the very first days of the investigation when we began discussing had Harvey Weinstein did anything done anything wrong how would we possibly find out we want you on the phone with us as we you know have those hushed conversations with actresses for the first time 
We want you in the offices of the New York Times with us as we have our final confrontations with him, which turned out to be very dramatic. And we included a lot of primary material in this book. You can, for example, read the texts between Christine Blasey Ford and her lawyers from last September as they were deciding whether or not she would go to Washington because the events of Me Too have come to mean so much to so many people that the idea here is to take you on the whole journey with us. And so also the book that you're currently touring, she said, uh, details the process you went through in reporting the story, like you mentioned, um, including some of like Harvey's efforts to kind of derail the story. What other sorts of obstacles did you run across, and was there ever a moment where you you were wondering if it would even go to print? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the the some of the tactics that Weinstein used um, seem kind of seem unique, right? Like the fact that he had hired these former Israeli intelligence officials to had promised them like $300,000 if they could put a stop to our investigation and the agents who adopted fake identities to try to dupe us and dupe our sources. You know, that that seems pretty extraordinary, but the truth is like there was an, there was another thing that we came up against in the course of our reporting that was much more challenging, which were secret settlements. And these are things that are actually widespread and are happening every single day across the country in cases of sexual harassment and sexual assault. Oftentimes, women, after they've experienced um, you know, one of those types of violations, will go to a lawyer because they want to do something about it and they want to try to you know, they, they want to try to address it, and they're often told that their best option is to t- basically accept money in exchange for silence. And the restrictive clauses that go along with these types of res- secret settlements are jaw-dropping. Women can't warn their colleagues. Um, they can't, if they, you know, kind of go on to get married, they can't tell their partner what's happened to them. If they want to see a therapist, the therapist has to sign a confidentiality clause. And if a reporter comes knocking, they are legally prohibited from telling that reporter what happened. So that happened to us multiple times in the course of reporting the Weinstein story. You know, we would knock on the doors of women who we suspected had been uh, victims of his, and those women were basically in this kind of untenable position. If they told us what had happened, they would be putting themselves in violation of a legally binding document. And we were ultimately able to do- to, to document that there, that this financial trail of payoffs. And so these tools that have been used to kind of help cover up misconduct, in this case, were also used to help illuminate it. And it's been just over two years now since the article went live, and there have been countless more articles from the local stage to basically the international. Um, What skills did you use to do reporting like this um, that was frankly pretty unprecedented Um, that you're still seeing as used as fundamentals for doing this sort of reporting? And what sort of newer tactics have you been seeing uh, emerge either in your work or in reading the work of others? We really want to stress that most of the tools we used are the same ones that journalists use every single day around this country, around the world. Um, This was... This was just a matter of classic digging in so many ways of being persistent, of having doors slammed in our faces, of uh, making a lot of phone calls that people didn't answer, building relationships with sources, finding documents, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I would say the new tool that's been introduced is has to do with what Megan just said about settlements, which is that 
For a long time, when women signed confidential settlements, that meant that the story couldn't be written because they had taken the money in exchange for their silence. They had agreed never to speak about their own experiences again. And that was often a reason for journalists just shrugging and giving up and saying, I can't, I guess the story can't be written. But what our colleagues Emily Steele and Mike Schmidt figured out when they reported on Bill O'Reilly, who was fired because of the allegations that the Times aired, is that the settlements could be used as a kind of legal and financial trail to trace at least what the accusations were. And if one man had had accusation after accusation made uh, about him over the years, it was very telling. Bill O'Reilly and Fox eventually paid $45 million to silence women's complaints against him. So that's a pretty telling number. So I think that's I think that is one sort of new tool in the toolkit for writing about these. And I guess my last quick question is that in the book you talk a lot about the structures that led to people like Harvey Weinstein uh, kind of serially, di- um, their serial uh, digressions. What uh, what changes two years later have been made and what still needs to change? And is this always just going to be a never-ending battle? Mm-hmm. Well, certainly in the course of, you know, reporting the Weinstein story, some of the individuals that helped uh, enable him have been exposed. For example, Lisa Bloom, one of the most famous feminist attorneys in the country who crossed sides to work for him and help him evade scrutiny and help him seek to sort of manipulate and smear his uh, the women who made allegations against him. She's been e- exposed as an individual, right? But there are, in fact, systems that are still in place uh, two years later. These, For example, these secret settlements, they are being signed every single day across the country in cases of sexual harassment and sexual assault. There are some places, uh, there have been some state legislatures that are now grappling with them and are trying to pass reforms that say, yes, obviously victims are entitled to financial recompense for what they've gone through, but they shouldn't have to pay the price of silence in return. And are there ways to basically take away these to do these types of settlements in a way that don't allow alleged predators to use them to cover up their tracks and go on to allegedly harm more people. Great. Thank you so much. You're listening to News Underground on Radio 1190. uh, And that was just my interview. Uh, My name's Lucy, by the way. I'm the news director uh, with Jody Cantor and Megan Chewy. They are the New York Times journalists who broke the Harvey Weinstein expose uh, just about two years ago. And they were on campus on Monday uh, giving a talk kind of about that and about the two years between then and now um, in the book that they have put out as of last month, I believe, uh, kind of detailing the aftermath of the of the expose and also giving more details than they may have given uh, in print at the time. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to reading the book. I haven't yet. It's called She Said. Uh, and they're kind of touring around the country right now doing some book promotion. Uh, so if if you're not in Boulder or Denver, Uh, I'm not sure if they're coming back here, but I know that they're doing quite a few cities, so see if maybe you want to see more from them. Next up, I have an interview uh, done by news correspondent Clara uh, Gagan, and she is talking with Brittany Carpenter, who is a community health specialist at Boulder County, uh, focusing on tobacco education and prevention. And they're talking about the vaping ban that went into effect 
uh, in Boulder very recently. So what it is, is uh, raising the age that you can buy any sort of nicotine product to 21. It was previously 18, which is also the federal age right now. Um, and also eliminating any flavored vaping juices that contain nicotine. So there can still be non-nicotine sold uh, flavored juices at, say, a, a, a shop that sells uh, vaping equipment and vaping paraphernalia, but the anything that has nicotine can only be flavored as tobacco, um, which is not dissimilar to uh, a while ago, a long time ago, when cigarettes were limited to tobacco flavoring, uh, sometimes also menthol flavoring. But they're talking about the, vi- the ban from a uh, public health perspective, uh, not really much into the actual policy itself, but into why why Boulder is doing this. Uh, Boulder's not the only one either. Um, multiple municipalities in the area and nationwide are considering this uh, just in a way of preventing the lack of regulation that occurs in the vaping industry um, and the trying to prevent, you know, impacts that may come in the short and long term from vaping, but you can hear more of that in this interview. Enjoy. You're listening to News Underground on Radio 1190. Thanks for having me. My name is Brittany Carpenter, um, and I do work for Boulder County Public Health in our Tobacco Education and Prevention Partnership Program, and I'm excited to be here tonight. Thank you so much. So tonight we are talking about Boulder County Ordinance 8340. It was enacted on September 17th, 2019, and it does two really big things. One is it changes the tobacco purchasing age from 18 to 21, and it also makes it so retailers in Boulder cannot sell um, flavored vaping products uh, other than the flavored tobacco. It also limits two e-cigarettes and four juices uh, every 24 hours. Um, So, Brittany, would you be able to give us some background on the public health rationale behind why this ban was put in place. Yeah, absolutely. So we know that youth in Boulder County are using nicotine products, specifically vaping products, at rates that are really, really high. So in Boulder County, we have rates that are amongst the highest in the state. In Colorado, um, is double the national average. So we see that young people in our communities are using these products much higher uh, than what is happening across the nation. So there are a few things that we know work um, in terms of best practice and evidence-based as it relates to tobacco prevention and control. And a few of those things include increasing the age to 21, banning the sale of flavored products, and also licensing um, those who sell uh, nicotine-containing products. So that is really the, uh, the reasoning behind looking at these particular ordinances is to really reduce youth use and youth access to these particular products given our high use rates. So one question I have is, what do we know about the health risks of vaping and perhaps what do we not know yet? Yeah, so I think um, there's a lot that we don't know yet. Uh, These products are relatively new um, to the market. So they came to the market in 2007. And so 
Long-term health impacts, we do not have any information on just yet. Um, there are some studies that have been coming out as it relates to short-term impacts, and we do know that there are impacts to the respiratory system. Um, there are some neurologic impacts, and there's also some health and safety pieces as it relates to explosion potential. So we do know that there are some health impacts associated with these devices, but in terms of what that looks like long-term, we just don't know yet. Sorry, just to go back, what do you mean by explosion potential? That's something I haven't heard of. Yeah, so we have seen some devices, um, if they're maybe not um, being charged properly or a charger that it did not come with is being used to charge the device. Um, if it comes, the lithium ion battery in some devices, if it comes in contact with um, maybe coins in your pocket or keys in your pocket, that could create an explosion. Um, and so there have been some some things that have come out showing a person's pocket lighting on fire um, or the device um, exploding while someone is using it. So there have been dental impacts too from the device um, exploding while a person is using it. Huh, scary. Who would have, who would have known? Not me. Um, we, we see this uh, perception about vaping being a healthy alternative to cigarettes. 90% uh, of Boulder Valley High School students believe smoking is risky, whereas only 50% believe the same about vaping. Do you have any um, perspective on where this, this, I don't know if it's a misconception yet, but uh, where this belief comes from? Yeah, so I think that... Um the industry has absolutely marketed their products to say that they are a safer or healthier alternative. And I think you're right that we don't necessarily know yet. But I think one thing that we do know for certain is that exposing the young developing brain to nicotine um, is not safe. So I think when we're talking about maybe a 65-year-old person who has smoked two packs of cigarettes a day for 35 years and they decide that they want to try vaping, there may be some health benefit for them. But if we're talking about a 13-year-old student who's in middle school who's exposing their developing brain to nicotine, we absolutely know that that's not safe. Um, so I think that that's one thing to consider when we're having conversations around vaping is talking about young people in their developing brain who may have never been exposed to nicotine in comparison to somebody um, who's maybe been smoking for a long time and has tried other FDA-approved medications to quit smoking and have not had success. That might be a different conversation. I know that one large uh, criticism of this new ban is people who, who think... Uh, there's a fear that those who have gone from cigarettes to vaping will go back to cigarettes or from vaping to cigarettes. Do you think this is um, a potential risk? And if so, how is this sort of factored into the newest ordinance? Yeah, so I think our data tells us that a lot of um, folks who initiated using these vaping products had never tried a combustible product. So I think we absolutely need to have conversations around nicotine addiction and what that means for folks who've been using these products. Um, and if they're interested in um, seeking help or understanding what resources exist, if they are interested in transitioning off of vaping, uh, in terms of transitioning back to combustible cigarettes, I'm not sure that we have that information yet, uh, but those are conversations we're having now is to try to figure out what do we need to do to ensure that folks have what they need um, so that they 
do not transition to another nicotine-containing product um, unless it is an FDA-approved uh, medication that has been proven to help people quit. Sort of off of that, um, I'm going to cite a New England Journal of Medicine study that was looking at different ways of quitting nicotine use, and they found um, one year off from the study, study about 10% of participants who were using nicotine replacement uh, items such as gum or patches uh, had quit tobacco successfully, whereas 18% in the e-cigarettes had quit successfully. Is that so there's some evidence that there might be a that they might be better for quitting cigarettes, if that makes sense. Um, what what's sort of the reaction to that? Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And I want to make note that that study did look at using products in combination with counseling. So I think it's really important to know that best practice says in order to successfully quit, you have the greatest chance of doing that by using an FDA-approved medication in combination with counseling. So I think that there is some additional opportunity to look at um, what an e-cigarette could help someone um, do in terms of quitting in combination with counseling. Um, but I will also note that none of these products have gone through um, the approval process to become an FDA-approved cessation medication. So that application is open and anyone can submit uh, for their product to be reviewed. And to date, no um, manufacturer of e-cigarettes has initiated that process or tried to go through uh, the approval process to become an approved cessation device. So that opportunity does exist. That's really interesting because I know Juul has specifically marketed themselves as a nicotine cessation device, um, but that would that would kind of act a little counterintuitively. What do you think about criticisms uh, of Juul that they have not marketed enough? They have not given their message enough that um, their products should not be used for people who have never touched a cigarette before. Yeah, so I think of late, Juul has absolutely um, taken strides or steps to um, really let the public know what their product was intended for. I think early on, um, there is clear evidence that shows that Juul did market their products to young people. Um, looking at the ads that they used and the platforms in which they were using to advertise their products on um, shows that that they may have been marketing their products to youth and young adults. So I, I do think that they have um, have taken steps to show that they do not want these products in the hands of young people, but I think we're a few years behind um, given what the data is telling us in terms of the number of young people who are using these products. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Um, one question, and this comes from a friend of mine who was pretty critical of this ban, why are we banning um, vape flavors that do not have nicotine, that are zero nicotine? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I will say there has been a lot of research um, or a few studies that have been done on a variety of different e-liquids. And a few of the e-liquids that claimed that they did not have any nicotine did in fact have nicotine in them. So because there's a lack of regulation around these particular products, um, we don't necessarily know what's in them. So even if you are consuming what you think is a 0% um, you know, milligram e-liquid, that might not actually be true. So there have been trace amounts of nicotine to be found in e-liquids that um, 
are labeled as not having any nicotine. So we feel as though being comprehensive, um, since there's a lack of regulation around what manufacturers are required to say is in their product, makes the most sense to ensure that we are being really protective of the young people in our community. Absolutely. So on September 11th, President Trump um, and Health and Human Services Secretary Alex uh, Azar and the acting commissioner of the FDA announced a proposed policy that would require e-cigarette companies to take all flavored e-cigarettes other than tobacco flavor from the market. These final guidances have not been issued, but do you think this is a step in the right direction? Yes, I think that... um it's really interesting that this came out of our federal government. I'm excited to see what the language actually looks like. Um, I think we'll probably know more in the coming weeks. But I also think it's interesting to note that there's now been, I believe, four states that have issued um, flavor bans, uh, including Rhode Island, Massachusetts, New York, and Michigan. Uh, so states are taking action now Um really, I think, in anticipation of what might be coming from the federal government. But I think that we know that flavors are a main, one of the main attractors in terms of why young people are using these products. That's the number one cited reason as to why a young person initiates. So I think that we know when we look at banning flavors, we can have the greatest impact in terms of driving youth use rates down. So I do feel as though this is a step in the right direction, given what the evidence and the best what best practice says. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see um, in the coming weeks what happens from the federal government. So there's been a lot of attention on a handful of cases that are being called acute vaping lung-related mm -hmm. illnesses. Am I correct on that? Um, yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, what do you think, or what do we know at least, about these cases and what they could mean about the risks of vaping? Yes, absolutely. So I think that um, there's information that's coming out um, almost every day and the numbers are changing every week. So just to note when um, this may be old uh, when some of you are listening, but I think uh, the latest number that I have heard as it relates to these particular cases or probable cases, the way in which it's defined, is there's been 805 cases across the United States, including 12 deaths. In terms of commonalities associated with uh, what these cases have looked like, um, a number of the cases folks have reported using THC-containing products, a smaller amount have reported nicotine only, and then a handful um, have reported THC uh, in combination with using nicotine-containing products. So in terms of a, a common ingredient, um, we don't have that type of information yet because every case, um, really the only commonality is use of a vaping device in the last 90 days. There are some other um, symptoms associated, including dizziness, shortness of breath, um, and some, uh, some stomach issues as well are some of the um, symptoms that folks are reporting. Beyond that, um, we don't have a ton of information in terms of brand or product to, to share at this point in terms of, you know, who may be experiencing this more. Absolutely. So one last question I want to ask is, if somebody in Boulder who might be listening is looking to quit vaping or quit nicotine use, where should they go? Who should they talk to? 
Yeah, absolutely. I know um, here at uh, CU Boulder, there's a great resource through Health Promotion. Um, they uh, they offer nicotine counseling, uh, so that's a really great resource. There's also a resource through the state of Colorado called the Colorado Quit Line. Um, you can call that number. It's 1-800-QUIT-NOW. They also have a texting service available um, through that particular platform. If you're over the age of 18, you can also receive free nicotine replacement therapy be um, free of charge. So those are a few resources um, that are really accessible and free and have been really proven to help folks um, quit or at least decrease their use of nicotine products. So what do you think vaping, the future of vaping is going to look like in the United States? I think that's a really great question. I think with um, potential legislation coming from the federal government um, and really processes coming in, um, I believe it's March of 2020, for pre-market review of these products, that will tell us a lot. So I I would anticipate um, increased regulation for these particular products. If folks are wanting to continue to be able to sell these products, we need to know what's in them so that we have a better sense of health impacts and what that means um, from a public health perspective. But I do think that um, there's lots of opportunity for further conversation around what what this means um, in terms of, you know, local ordinances. But I also think that there is a lot of uh, research that needs to be done so that we have uh, a greater understanding uh, of how we can really meet our community's need around this. Absolutely. Thank you very much. That was just news correspondent Clara Gagan talking with Brittany Carpenter. She's with Boulder County's Public Health Department. Uh, She specializes in tobacco use and prevention and such. Uh, And they were talking about the vaping ban that went into effect last September in the city of Boulder, uh, last September being last month, uh, and how it was kind of reasoned out from a public health standpoint and the potential impacts of that. I hope you enjoyed. Uh, That's all I have for you today. You've been listening to News Underground on Radio 1190, where every Monday and Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m., uh, and then we upload our shows onto our SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash radio1190. If you missed it or if you want to send it to a friend because you liked it so much, we would love that. So that's all for us this week. We'll see you next Monday and have a good rest of your week, rest of your day. And yeah, this is Radio 1190, 1190 AM, 98.9 FM. Always, Radio1190.org. Things can come back if they know why they have been away. Radio 1190, 1190 AM, 98.9 FM in Boulder.